Well, two weeks ago, we were in Ephesians chapter 1, and really it was a sermon on the eternality of God, that He exists outside of time, and, and the implications of that for creation, salvation, the course of history. And I'm sure at the end of that sermon, it left a lot of people with a lot of questions. Is this, this doctrine, the sovereignty of God, it usually does. It leaves people with questions about justice, about love, about our will. And it would be impossible, completely impossible to get to all of those questions in one sermon. And so we're going to continue this week to examine this doctrine of the sovereignty of God in election. And in particular, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. It's, uh, it's ironic that uh, a lot of modern scholarship on Romans 9 seeks to escape from what the chapter seems to be clearly saying. Sime tries to escape from the passages that say God unconditionally elects individuals to participate in His promises and blessings. The chief of them being salvation and all that that entails. Many interpretations of this chapter try to get away from that. And so I want to spend our time this morning looking carefully at the passage. And I want to look carefully at it to see what it does not say to see what it does say, and then answer a few of the objections that come up, because they come up right here in the text. So that's, Lord willing, the direction we're going to be going this morning. What's the point of this chapter? How does it make the point? And what are some objections to that point? I've had a lot of of help from commentaries and sermons and, and things on this passage, it's, uh, when you go to a lot of them and they all seem to say the same thing, it's, it's helpful and encouraging. But uh, So if you hear something that you've heard before, that's alright, everyone who believes that this passage is about unconditional election seems to be saying the same thing. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if you say, I heard that here, I heard that there. Everyone's kind of saying the same thing about it. Well, that said, Romans 9, verse 6, on to verse 23. Romans 9, 6 through 23. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my the earth. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. Well, you will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have production in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Let's pray. Write the truth of Your Word on our hearts this morning that we would see Your greatness and Your wisdom and Your glory in everything that You do. That we would see ourselves rightly in the light of Your splendor. And God, I pray that You would help me, Lord. This is a challenging passage. And we don't want to approach it flippantly. And we don't want to approach it arrogantly. But with charity. And so I pray, Lord, that You would help me to have my heart rightly ordered this morning. And I pray that You would be with all of us and have our hearts rightly attuned to You to hear what Your Word has to say. You have given it to us, God, and I pray that You would help us to see it and know it, Lord. And more than it, to know You, that we might rejoice in our Father in Heaven. Thank You, God. There is no one like You. And it's in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, this passage often is the go-to passage for the doctrine of election, and rightly so. It says a lot about election. However, that's not the reason why this passage is here. This chapter was not inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down by Paul primarily to be a discourse on unconditional election. It's actually making a very important point regarding our assurance of the certainty of the promises of God. You see, this passage in Romans 9, it exists, it is in the Bible to answer a very specific question. And in order to understand this chapter and chapter 10 and chapter 11, you need to know what that question is. It's, it's like Jeopardy. You, you've got the answer, but now you need to know the question. And usually when Romans 9 is discussed, that question, or sometimes the problem, that Romans 9 is assumed to be answering is this. The Gentile Christians think that God has rejected ethnic Israel. That's a, a common starting point for interpreting this passage. Certain Gentile Christians in Rome may have wrongly began to thought that because of what's happening to the Jews, God has rejected them and cast them aside, and now the Gentiles are His chosen people. Uh, the, the Israelites are kicked to the curb. And Paul is going to refute that, and so Romans 9 is dealing with that wrong assumption. And if, if that is the main point of Romans 9, it has a tremendous influence on how you interpret the chapter. But that is not the main point being addressed here. It is. You say, well, it talks about it. Doesn't it talk about it at all? Yes, it does in Romans chapter 11. But it's not the starting point. In chapter 11, there's a, a caution comes. There's a, a warning not to think that because of everything said in chapters 9 and 10, don't think because of all of that that God has rejected Israel. But that line of thinking, it doesn't enter into the equation until later. It's not the starting point. It's not the problem that Romans 9 is taking up. And so it shouldn't have any bearing on how we interpret this chapter. Now, maybe you think, well, hold on, Romans, 
Romans 11.28, ethnic Israel regarding election is beloved by God. And that's true. And there will be, I believe, a future where God, after the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in, will effectively draw the nation of Israel to Himself. And in Romans 11.28, it is speaking about a corporate election, election of, of that nation of people. That's true, but that's not what is happening here in Romans 9. And I say that because in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, a distinction is made. A distinction is made between those individual ethnic Israelites who are elect and those ethnic Israelites who are hardened. And in those verses, so chapter 11, 5, 6, 7, I think 8 and 9 as well. In those verses, they are elected to grace and faith and believing the gospel. It's continuing the same argument that begins here in chapter 9. And so Romans 9, it's not dealing with the perception of God rejecting Israel. Romans 11 is, but not here. So if that's not the point, what is? Well, let me give an illustration. Imagine a king, great powerful king came and he made a promise to a village and his promise was your land will be secure forever. I will never stop protecting this city. I will set my love upon it and I will establish it as my capital, capital of my empire and it will never fall to its enemies. From here I will rule with justice. And people from all over are going to come and swear allegiance to me, this king, at this city. Imagine a king made a promise like that to this little town. Now, what would you think if you heard on the, you know, on, on the headlines that that village was overrun by its enemies? All of its inhabitants were driven out to the far-flung corners of the earth and all of the stately buildings that promised its imperial future were destroyed. They were cast down. Well, I know what you would think. The promises that king made to this little village, these people, they failed. They have fallen to the ground. He said he was going to do all of these wonderful things, but he didn't do any of them, and now his words have fallen. I mean, that's what you would think, right? If a king said he was going to do something and he didn't do it, what good are his words? What good are his promises? That's the problem Romans 9 is addressing. Because Romans 8, one chapter earlier, it holds the greatest concentration of promises in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then after this outpouring of grace and precious promises in Romans 8, Paul speaks briefly in Romans 1-5 through about some of the promises the Israelites have received. And then comes verse 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because the promises that God made to ethnic Israel look like they're failing. Right? He promised them the land. They're being driven out of the land. He promised them a king from the line of David. They're under the thumb of the Romans. Pilate's on the throne. He promised uh, the, them the Messiah. He promised them the adoption, the worship, the covenant. And when the Messiah came and the time for His promises, and if He can't, what good are they? There's a lot more at stake here than just uh, the prejudice that against the Jews. And the answer... The answer that Romans 9 provides is that all of those promises in the past will come to pass and are coming to pass, but not for ethnic Israel. They are coming to pass for true Israel or faithful Israel or whatever, you wanna, whatever name you want to put on them. But there is a people sliced out of ethnic Israel that belong to God all along, like the 7,000 who in Elijah's day would not bow the knee to Baal. 
They are the ones who inherit the promises of Romans 8. And they were not chosen based on ethnicity. God's sovereign purpose. That's the argument that Paul makes for why we can trust God's promises. And he makes that argument. He begins it starting in the second half of verse 6. It says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your children shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And so right here, there's a a division being made way back in the time of Abraham. And that division is true Israel and ethnic Israel. Whatever you want to call them, but not all descended ethnic belong to Israel. And not everyone descended from Abraham are his children. You think, well, that must be talking about Ishmael and Isaac. No, because he already told us back in chapter 4 that true children of Abraham are children of faith, those who have faith, not biological descent. That's been already very clearly established. And if you think, well, then it must be a distinction between ethnic Jews who believe and ethnic Jews who do not believe. No, verse 8 tells us it is between children of the flesh and children of God. It's not children of the flesh who are children, but are Uh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. In fact, all in Romans 8, that distinction is made between those who are in the flesh and those who are of God. And so here, he is identifying in these verses who the true children of God are. That's his first argument for why the Word hasn't fallen. The promises of God were never intended for every ethnic Jew or for the children of biological descent. They were for the children of the promise. I hope you see that in these verses. It's there three times. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, but not all who are children, uh, not all are children of Abraham who are descended from Abraham. Not all the children of the flesh belong to God, but the children of the promise. So the promises were never intended for physical Israel. And I would argue that the promises are spiritual somewhat as well, but that's beyond the scope of this morning. But the promises that God gave were never to all of these people, but to the section of those people who are faithful, children of promise. Which takes us to Paul's Second reason for why the word hasn't fallen. He's going to give us one more after this. It has always been true for the children of the promise. That's one. And two, second, those children did not come into being by their own doing. And you see the the direction that Paul is taking us. It isn't of the natural descent. True Israel, children of the promise, did not come into being by their own doing, but by the sovereign and effective word of promise. He makes that point with Isaac. Children of the promise are not born of the flesh like Ishmael was. But they are born from the miraculous, life-creating, sovereign power of God. And if you remember the account in Genesis, Abraham, he really wanted Ishmael to inherit the promises, right? He wanted Ishmael to be the one. He had he and Sarah connived together and they got Ishmael. And so he wanted God to give the promises to him. And God said, he saw what he did, and he answered him what is quoted in verse 7, No, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Why? Because God doesn't build his people through that human method. He does it by miraculous, regenerative, creative power that makes people born again. That's why verse 9 says what it says. He is telling us how the children of that promise come into being. So the promises of God belong to children of the promise. Where do those children of the promise come from? They come from God. And God enters into the scene and creates them at the appointed time. So true Israel or the children of promise, or whatever you want to call them, they don't make themselves. God does. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. 
When God told this to Abraham, Sarah was barren, right? No children and none going to come. It was totally impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child. God says, I'm going to fulfill my promise through her. That's how I'm going to give you an heir. Not according to the will of man, but according to the power and the will of God. And so God creates the children of God. No one, not not even the Jews, are born that way. So that's reason two. God's word, God's promise creates the promised people. They, they don't come by human descent. Ishmael is the, is, the, is the height of human ingenuity. Isaac is the power of God. And the promise of God was for Isaac. Reason three. So, the true people of God, who are brought into existence by the power and promise of God, and those are the, those are the people for whom the promises of God are true, were chosen unconditionally before that happened. That's the third argument for why the Word of God hasn't fallen. And Paul makes it by moving from Isaac to Jacob and Esau. And so we're leaving behind children of the promise are of supernatural origin. Right? That's number two. Now, reason three, those people were chosen and were chosen by the purposes of God. How does he make this argument? Well, first, they were twins. Twins. And, and he's, he's trying to prove sameness here. That's the, that's the goal in this passage. They were alike. He's trying to show that one was not more qualified than the other. Neither Jacob or Esau was more deserving. I mean, you go back and you read the story of Jacob and Esau, one of the things that leaves you scratching your head is, I don't know why he blessed either of them. Right? The one thing that's clear in the passage is neither of them deserved it. They were the same. Going on, they had the same parents. Isaac and Rebekah, she conceived by one man, two twins. They're the same in almost every way. And then we're told God chose the heir before they were born or had done anything good or bad. No action had been taken by them to influence the choice God made. That's the point being made here. Their actions did not influence God. Before either of them were born or had done anything, these two twins who were completely the same in every way, God tells Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. That's what it says. Why? Why, why does God do it this way? Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in verse 11, though they were not yet born or had done anything good or bad, in order, in order that. So why did God do it this way? What is God up to? He tells us in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So God chose true Israel. He chose the child of promise. And He chose Jacob over Esau in order that His purpose of election might continue in a certain way. What's that certain way? Not on the basis of anyone's good or bad deeds. It was before they were born. So election not on the basis of works. And if you've, ever, if you've never read this before, you would be working through here, you get to this point, not on the basis of works, and you would expect to read, you would expect Paul to say, but on account of faith, right? Because that's what it says earlier in Romans 3, not by works, but by faith. Same thing in Galatians 2.16, same thing in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, same thing in Philippians 3. Not because of works, but because of faith. And that's not what he says here, because it's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking about faith. And if he was electing on the basis of faith, it would defeat his entire argument. Does not, not look good for 
the idea that God looks down the corridor of time to see who is going to have faith and elects based on that. That's actually the opposite of what he says here. They were not chosen on the basis of future faith before anyone had done anything good or bad, but on the basis, the sole basis of God's purpose in election. I say, well, what about foreknowledge in Romans 8? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Well, that doesn't say anything about faith. And to think that the foreknowledge there is a foreknowledge based on God knows all things and He knows who will have faith and He knows uh, and He'll predestine them based on His knowledge of that. I don't think that's what it's saying. What I would say it's saying is God foreknew them not in His knowing of all things. We know that God knows all things. But the foreknowledge there, that word know is being used in the way that uh, it is used throughout much of the Old Testament and the New Testament where God says, or where you read in Genesis, that Adam knew Eve and she conceived. And so it's not talking about God's knowledge of something that's going to happen. But that word for know could easily be translated as for loved. It's uh, that word know in that intimate sense of knowing another person. God set His love on these people before they were born or brought into existence. God foreloved them. And so that predestinating, electing calling is based on the love God has for His elect and they have always been His people. Right? Why aren't the promises of God failing? Because God planned to give the promises to these people before any of this apparent failure even began to take place. They are the promised people brought about by the supernatural regenerating work of God, just like Isaac being made in the barren womb, and they have always been the recipients of God's many precious promises, like you have in Romans 8. And for them, the Word of God never fails, ever. And the reason it doesn't fail is because it depends 100% ultimately and decisively on Him. That's the answer to the problem. Is the Word of God failing? No, it's not. Because it was always meant for the elect. They have always inherited it, always believed, and always received them. Now this raises some problems. Some people might take offense to what Paul has just said about unconditional election. Which is why the next ten verses deal specifically with hypothetical objections. You know, nobody objects when you tell them in one way or another that ultimately God chooses people based on the decisions that they make. Right, foreseen future faith. Nobody hears that and calls God unjust. Nobody hears, well, God elects a nation or a group of people and then adds individuals to that elect nation based on faith. Nobody hears that and says, God has done wrong. Nobody hears, God has mercy on whom He wills based on the decisions they make and says, why does God then find fault with us? Nobody says that. But when they hear God has mercy on whom He has mercy and He hardens whom He hardens, then the objections that Paul deals with here in verses 14-23, through 23, they start to come flooding in. Which is one of the reasons why I am convinced he is speaking about unconditional election. Now he ends in verse 13 by saying, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I hated. That's what, that's, that's what really prompts the objections, the charges against him. And it's a quote from Malachi 1, 1 through 4. And you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But it's actually making the same point as verses 10 through 13. Jacob and Esau were brothers. And yet, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And what does that hatred look like? Malachi 1, verse 3. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, 
Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Now, I'll leave the interpretation of that up to you. But I think hatred meaning just loved less might not be exactly what God is talking. And I don't say that cynically. I say that seriously. It does not look good for Esau. And that declaration of love for Jacob and rejection of Esau, that's what prompts the first hypothetical charge brought against God by the Apostle in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The answer, by no means. Strongest possible objection. No way. Why? Here's the reason why what God is doing is not unjust. Here's that for again. For is answering the question. God is not unjust. Why? For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The inheritance... The promises of God ultimately and decisively do not depend on human will or human effort, but on God who has mercy. The promises belong to God, and He can distribute them to whoever He wants. Just because He is merciful to some does not mean He must be merciful to all. Some, we're told, are even hardened. And to prove it, the Scriptures remind us of Pharaoh. And this is not just because Pharaoh is a good example. The account of Exodus is very important because it, it shows us how God hardens a person. How does God bring this hardening about? And so Paul answers that charge of injustice by saying, no, God has mercy on whoever He wants. He doesn't owe mercy to everyone. If He did owe, owe mercy to everyone, it wouldn't be mercy. But the second place He goes, He gives more of an answer. Maybe not more of an answer, but he gives another answer. And so Jacob hated, Pharaoh hardened, God is unjust. Those are serious charges. And Paul says, no, that's not what it's like. Answer the charge. So you remember Pharaoh. God hardened his heart to do very foolish things. God hardened his heart to rail against God's people and ultimately to be destroyed. And when you read Exodus chapter 3, God says beforehand He is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so God's... And yet, if you go back and you read the ten plagues, you read this section, you see two things happening. God does what He says. God does harden Pharaoh's heart. But it also says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God's hardening of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hardening of himself go hand in hand. You say, how does that work? Romans 1 tells us how it works. Why do people seem to spiral downward into sin even when its consequences become more and more dire and its foolishness is more and more observable and you just, they just keep going in this direction that you know leads to destruction? You wonder, why in the world are they doing this? They do it because God hands them over. God shows Himself in creation to the people. They see His handiwork everywhere. They say, no thank you, God. Yeah, we know what is right. That's obvious. We're going our own way. And God says, alright. Go ahead. And He hands them over because they refuse Him. He hands them over because they hate Him. That's Romans... 1 verse 30, that's what it says. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart, not by creating evil in there, but by handing Pharaoh over to his own sin. Sin that rejects all wisdom and celebrates madness and makes terribly foolish decisions. Like leading an, an army, his entire army, what was left of it, into the parted waters of the Red Sea. I mean, only a man totally blinded by the foolishness of sin and, and vengeance and wrath would ever make such an a, a, a idiotic decision. God hardened His heart by removing restraints and handing Him over to His sin. 
And with Esau, God passed him over and left him in his fallen state so that he became the wicked nation of Edom that was deserving of God's anger and hatred. God passed him by. God removed his blessing. His common grace is lessened and the individual becomes what God decreed. It's like a manager with an untrustworthy employee or a worker. When the manager is there, and he's watching, telling the employee what to do, he's working away, he's doing good. But the moment the manager steps out, goes away, he's no longer in the picture, what happens? The worthlessness of the employee begins to show. Maybe he stops working, maybe he steals from the company, maybe whatever he does, whatever it is, is it the manager's fault? Well, there is a sense where the manager created this by his absence, but it certainly is not his fault. In the same way, God hardens whom He wills and is not unjust, and they are responsible for their sin. Maybe you think, wait a minute. God's greater than manager. And if it still, it still ultimately depends on Him, so that isn't fair. You bring up the second accusation, the second charge against God. Well, then why does He still find fault for who resists His will? How can God call people guilty if they just do whatever they were destined to do? Even if God does it merely by removing restraint. And at this point, Paul gives a stronger answer. He says, who do you think you are, O oh man, to answer back to God? Right? No talking back. And you see what he means. He's saying this is not primarily a theological problem. Right? If that's true, then it means God is like this and God is like that. No, that's not where he points the finger. He, he points it at the heart of the accuser. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And then he does give an answer, and though it's not the one that you might expect... You know, in the book of Job, Job is really a book full of mystery. Certainly from Job's perspective, what's going on is incredibly mysterious. And Job, you remember through the whole book, what's he doing? He's questioning the justice of God. He's demanding an answer. He's posing all kinds of hypothetical questions about divine control. But in the end, he doesn't get an answer. You know what he gets? He gets a vision of God. God shows up and God says, Who is this who has darkened my counsel with words without knowledge? And Job relents. He even repents. He puts his hand over his mouth and says, I didn't know what I was talking about. Who am I to answer back to you? Well, the same thing happens here. Paul reminds us that we are clay and God is God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy known which He has prepared beforehand for glory? And so to answer the question, who resists his will? One, Paul says God has the right to do what he does. He has the right to do it by virtue of being creator to create some for wrath and others for more noble ends. Now, I want to be very careful here. Because I know the objection, the accusation that comes. You mean to tell me, maybe some of you are thinking this, you mean to tell me that you believe that God creates people for destruction. This is not a small charge to bring against God. Well, the verse says He has the right to do that. I grant that it doesn't say He does this. Although in one sense, I think He does. But if He did create them for destruction, the verse says if He did, He would have the right to and we would have no grounds to be angry about it. That is what the passage says. We have no grounds to be angry about it. But also, 
No theological system can escape from this reality. None. If you believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal Creator God, you have to answer this question. Yeah, you, you, you can't be escaped from. Because God knows who will believe, and He knows who will not believe, and He creates them anyway. And there are countless people who God, knowing they would not believe and would be destined for hell, God created. And He created billions of people throughout history whom He knew would never hear the Gospel. And that's just a fact to be reckoned with by every Christian, no matter your theological stripes. God, in a certain sense, and I stress that in a certain sense, because if we're not careful, we can accuse God of being the author of evil and of unbelief, which we know He does not do. Nevertheless, there is a sense where He does create people for destruction. This is why at Proverbs 16.14 it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 1 Peter 2.7-8 and 8, But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. And whether it's based on His purpose of election or, or the faith that they will or will not exercise, it doesn't change the reality that God creates people He knows are destined for destruction. Pharaoh, Esau, unbelieving Israelites disobeyed the Word because it was what they were destined to do. Now God handed them over, to be sure. But the first step, if you want to answer this question, the first step to answering, and we're going to get to maybe a, an answer that you find a little more satisfying, but the first step to answer, how is this right, is to humbly confess that God is God and I am not. That's the starting point. And then you work out from there. And much of that working out is beyond the scope of our message this morning. But I want to point out something from this passage that gives a hint. Verse 22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's passive. And you know what that means. Passive. It, it doesn't say it is God who is preparing them for destruction. All it says is they are prepared for destruction. That's not insignificant because in verse 23, God is actively showing mercy. He Himself is preparing them vessels of mercy for glory. And so God says, I prepare vessels for glory. Other vessels are prepared for destruction. What's that mean? It means it's a step removed. God takes direct responsibility for preparing vessels for glory. But He does not take responsibility for the vessels prepared for destruction, even though in a certain way He creates them for it. That's verse 21. Potter makes one vessel for honorable use and for dishonorable use. And that's why I've said we have to start with God as God and He is all wise and He never does anything wrong. But nevertheless, man is responsible. Man is responsible for his destruction. God is not. Those are two truths that the Scriptures hold in tension with one another. And we might not be able to fully comprehend it in the same way we can't fully comprehend the Trinity or many things about God. But elsewhere in Scripture, it's made abundantly clear. The responsibility for preparation for destruction is not just in many places, but is always placed squarely on the heart of the person who goes on to be destroyed. Jesus says, you will not come to me so that you may have life. God is patient with people so that they will come to repentance. Over Jerusalem, I long to gather you, Jesus says. I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Or Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And if they don't, it's on them. And there are many other passages, dozens of other passages that say the same thing. And you see this tension in Scriptures. It might not work out in my little brain, but I'm sure it works out in God's. 
And so it's possible to make too little of this doctrine, but you can make too much of it as well. We want to avoid both of those ditches. One denies the sovereignty of God over all things. The other accuses Him of doing what is evil. Both of those are not good places to be. God is merciful to an undeserving people who inherit His promises. And He hardens the people who bear the responsibility for their hardening and are thus prepared for destruction. Which takes us to the third charge, which isn't at the end of this chapter, but naturally comes from it. And you do see some of it right in the beginning. And that charge is, well, what about evangelism? What about evangelism? And I don't mean 2 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved. But what effect does the doctrine of election have on our relationship to lost people? Right, that's the charge. If you believe in election, why bother? You don't need to do anything. God has elected them. Well, I bring the charge up here because it is the total opposite of the effect that it has on the Apostle Paul in this chapter. Have you ever noticed, has it ever occurred to you that this foundational chapter on the doctrine of unconditional election begins with a lament and the earnest desire that Paul has for the lost, for his lost kinsmen? Verse 1 through 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is not the language that one usually associates with election. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish over the lostness of his people. So much so, like, what does Paul say? If I could be cursed, cut off from Christ, sent to hell, if it meant the salvation of those whom I loved, if God worked that way, and Paul knows he doesn't, but he says, if he did, Paul would be willing to do it. Listen, that is a far cry from, well, God will save his people. Shouldn't be any such thing as a cold-hearted Calvinist. And if you are, something is wrong. God electing, showing mercy, hardening, it should not have the effect of making you shrug your shoulders and say, well, it's all up to Him. That's not the effect it has on Paul. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish, tears and pleading. The doctrine of election is not supposed to quench that. It's supposed to comfort that fear, that anguish, and deepen the concern for those who are perishing. Where does Paul take his anguish? Where does he take the burden that he carries? Where do you take the burden that you carry for a a son or a daughter or a mother or sister and you know they don't believe and you've told them and they've heard the Gospel? You know. You know. If it's up to them, there's no way. There's no way they're going to believe. You should have heard what they said to me the last time I even mentioned the name Jesus. They tore me up and down. It's the last thing they ever want to hear about. You're carrying that around. Where do you go? You go to God. You go for two reasons. One, He is God. He will always do what is right. And you can trust Him to do what is right. And even though you would have saved immediately, the person that you're praying for and the person that your heart goes out to, you can take them to God and you can rest there. But it's not an unsorrowful resting place. But you can say, the God of all of the earth will do what is right with my lost loved one. But you don't stop there. That's a bad place to stop. If that's as far as you get and you sit down on your hands, that's that's not good. That's not where it takes Paul. 
Because Paul also goes to God because he knows that God is the only one who can overcome a hard heart. And the doctrine of unconditional election, it ought to spur you forward in earnest desire to see an undeserving people saved. That's what it does to Paul. I mean, look at him in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them that they might be saved. You wonder, how in the world does election create that kind of earnest prayer and desire? It does it like this. Paul, he goes into the synagogue. He's reading through the book of Acts. What does he do? When he gets to a town, he goes into a synagogue. And he begins to preach to them about Christ. And those people hearing him, time after time after time, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, instead of embracing Christ, instead of just being neutral about it or uncertain, every time he goes, they become furious, they become violent, and they want to kill him. They drive him away. And so he is exhausted. All of his persuasive ability, he has said everything that could be said as clearly as it could be said. Every obstacle, intellectually speaking, is overcome. And they respond with unmitigated hatred. They're not interested at all. And if their salvation depends on their will and their acceptance of the message... There is no hope for them. They are lost and damned. This is why he says, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's a hopeful thing for Paul to say because he knows if it depended on them, I mean, they're gnashing their teeth, they're they're polishing their stones to throw at him. If it depends on them, they would be utterly and totally without hope, the whole lot of them lost forever for good. They're not interested at all. And neither was Paul. That's why he uses himself as an example in chapter 11. He says, I was just like them. And in spite of it all, in spite of my own will, God saved me. He was on his way to kill Christians when God opened his eyes to mercy and grace. Paul wasn't seeking Paul wasn't open. Paul was as closed as closed could be, persecuting Christ. In chapter 11 too, he says, but look at me. I'm an Israelite. I was just as hard-hearted as the rest. When I walk into a synagogue and they get gnashing their teeth, they're so angry they can't even think straight. That was me. I was there. And God saved me. So when he looks out at a people who are unworthy and undeserving, a people who are rejecting Christ and hate the Lord God, Paul sees a people who were just like him. And he knows, if God can save me in spite of all my resistance, I was blind. I didn't know what I was doing. They don't know what they're doing. And if God can open my eyes and save me, He can do it for them. And so Paul does not give up when the people he loves hate the God he loves. And he goes back again and again and again until they drive him away. And you know, when he leaves the synagogue and shakes the dust off of his feet, it's never with, uh, oh fine, I hope you enjoy your place in hell. He shakes the dust off his feet because that's what Jesus told him to do. And he does it with unceasing anguish and great sorrow. Have you ever been there? Maybe not unceasing anguish, but anguish and great sorrow for people that you love. Your sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, or even just strangers that your heart goes out to in a, in a particular way. And you love them and you want them to know God, but they don't want anything to do with Him at all. They have their own life and they are happy with it. They've got their own plans. They're going their own direction. God works for you, not for me, and no thank you. 
If their salvation depends ultimately and decisively on them, forget it. They are not interested. And in 2023, as it seems restraints continue to be removed, God is more and more vilified and where people crumple the tracks you hand them and are angry for even having received one. In a world that celebrates every kind of sin imaginable without hesitation, where, where becoming a Christian is increasingly costly, uh, you're going to be talking to people who say, if I become a Christian, I'm going to lose my job. If I become a Christian, my family is going to hate me. If I become a Christian, I'm going to have to break up this relationship that I'm in. If I become a Christian, there's going to be a cost. When you live in that kind of world and believe, well, it's really up to them, I have zero hope, zero hope that anyone of their own volition, without God intervening, would ever turn to Him. I mean, if Paul couldn't persuade them in his day, if Jesus couldn't persuade them in John 6, what, what hope do I have? I mean, you, when you go out and talk to people, you are talking to people who don't know who Jesus is, don't know the Bible, don't know right from wrong, don't know their right hand from their left. They have no bearing of righteousness, no Christian foundation at all in many things. Do you think a couple of words on the track will persuade them? The only thing that persuades a person to become a Christian is the power of God that opens their eyes and makes them alive. God is the one who opens the eyes of the blind and mercifully saves those who hate Him. And if it wasn't for that, I'd be done. It's just too utterly hopeless. Mankind too far gone, too captive to sin. I mean, what grounds do I have to say today that a person who hates God and who hates everything God says from a culture that hates God and hates everything the Word says, what hope do I have of persuading one of them to come to faith? I don't. But if it depends on God who unconditionally elects, I have hope that God can save those who are willingly perishing. I have hope of guaranteed success, even though I am in a world where God is not only not rejoiced in, but regarded as a great villain. All that rejection ought to do is drive me more in anguish to the Lord who saves. Lord, I was just like them, and you saved me. And so this doctrine of election, it's not about winning arguments. It's about God's promises not falling to the ground. It's about confidence in the reliability of God to do everything He said He's going to do. It's about you being able to trust God to do what is right, even if you don't understand it. It's about hope for you, who one time could not have cared less about God, but now love Him and would lay down your life for Him, hoping that God will do the same for those you love. Having broken hearts before God for people you want to see come to Christ. People who were just like you and you would give your soul for them. And we ought to pour out ourselves to rescue as many as we can as we were rescued. God will make it effective in ways that you could never imagine Him bringing to pass. We have a great hope in our great God. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. I pray I would not be misunderstood in anything that was said. Lord, You are not the author of evil. You are not responsible for the destruction of human life eternally. We are responsible for it. But Lord, I pray that You would encourage the hearts of Your people to be zealous in evangelism, to reach the lost, to keep sharing and persuading 
with their family members who don't know you and that they would not give up hope. We were as lost as the rest. As lost as everyone. We once walked in those ways, but God, You delivered us. You pulled us up out of the pit. You can do that for anyone. For anyone, God. And so I pray that the warmth of Your grace would melt even the hardest of hearts. And that Your people would be confident in Christ. Not in themselves. Not in their arguments. But in the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ to turn men and women to Yourself. Lord, how will they hear unless someone is sent? It's in Your name we pray. Amen.